This is a No Land in Sight podcast production. Welcome to Is That Movie Still Good? The podcast where we take a movie from the past, give it a thorough rewatching, and ask the question, is that movie still good? This week, we're going to go in the closet, we're going to get out that box of cassette tapes, we're going to pull out the one where you listen to a bunch of stuff off the radio, put your favorite songs on there, with the DJ talking over it. We're going to see if it still sounds good, and we're going to see if you still like that DJ. This week, we've got a movie about a DJ, 1991's The Fisher King. So, sit back and enjoy. Is that movie still good as we discuss The Fisher King? Welcome back, friends. This is Is That Movie Still Good? Nate and I are here ready to start Season 2. This is the official start of Season 2. We just got a slice of pizza at the post as our usual pregame meal, and uh, we're ready to do it. Um, took a little break for the summer, but we're back. And if you guys were away, uh, the biggest development this summer is we have our own website. You can find us now at www.isthatmoviestillgood.com. And... If you're talking about this podcast to friends, as I have sometimes, and they say, I don't even know where to find a podcast. How do I listen to a podcast? Now you can just say, well, can you order off Amazon? Because if they can, they can find the podcast. They can listen to every episode, see some photos of Nate and me doing our thing, and uh, you know, tell your friends and uh, visit us at the podcast. Give us some feedback. We, we love to hear it. Yeah, and at some point, I will actually uh, have some photos taken where I'm not wearing a green shirt. <laughs> That's my goal. <laughs> all right, all right. The that's goals. Good. That's life good. goals. <laughs> life goals. Uh, we should have survived today because I don't have a green shirt on tonight. We should have, yes. Uh, it was just a coincidence, I think. Nate is uh, wearing red. I am wearing a little marine red, so we got a little theme going on. We do kind of match. Yeah, yeah we do yeah. kind of match. Anyway, um, so we're going to do Fisher King from 91. Uh, Nate, what do you remember about this one? Oh, I really enjoyed this movie right from the get-go. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I, it was one of those that... Just kind of was different. It kind of popped at you. It had a lot of different elements as far as drama, comedy, you know, you name it. It, it, it has a lot. Great, great cast, good production, good direction. And what I remember the most about it, it was one of those movies that we bootlegged onto a VHS tape. Yeah. Back back when you know you would do that type of thing. And so we would watch it a lot. Mm-hmm. Now, with that said, until preparing for this podcast, I had probably not seen this movie since 96, maybe 97. Definitely not in this century. I have not seen this since the early 90s. I remember watching it once, maybe twice. I haven't seen it many times. Uh, really liked it. It's a good movie. Uh, so I was really excited to revisit it. This was one that you called. You wanted to revisit this one. Um, so we're going back to 91, which interestingly enough is how we started season one with Kate Fear from 1991. So some overlap in terms of Oscar nominations and things like now, that. Did you graduate in high school in 91 too? No, I graduated in 90. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm 91. Okay. I, yeah. I, I didn't know if there was some type of like weird like spiritual correlation. <laughs> no, there. no. I, I, not, not, uh, not in that fashion anyway. Oh, okay. Um, so... I guess let's just start off with the, the opening sequence of this movie, which is really, really powerful um, if you've never seen it. And this movie, when I watched it this time, I, I couldn't believe sort of how prescient it is even in, in modern times. Like it, it Well, this could, movie holds up very well. It does hold up really well. And it's actually, actually, and we'll get more into this later, not only does it hold up well, it's almost, and I don't want to go as far as to say prophetic, but it's like it is a little ahead of its time. It is. I think it is. I totally think it is. And that opening sequence was very ahead of its time. It, you know, it's a shock jock in his studio recording his radio show, um, taking callers and then sort of berating and, and belittling the callers. 
very Howard Stern style. Well, I mean, it's totally 100% based off Howard, Howard Stern. Correct. And As a matter of fact, the studio actually went to Howard Stern yes. and asked if they could get some tapes from him. And mm-hmm. he said, sure, but you have to pay me to be a consultant. Right. And they said, no. And he said, you're not getting my tapes then. Right. Correct. Which is super weird, right? Like, because if you want tapes of Howard Stern, just set your, set what, your radio to record. We, we just, in our, in our opening metaphor, we talked about taping That's all radio. you have to do, right? It's not hard to do. No. And it's not like the guy wasn't producing, like, four hours of content every morning. Every day. Yeah. Like, it's like, what, what do unless they were going to actually, like, use those tapes in the movie, which of course you have copyright infringement right, right. issues there, but it's yeah, just uh, listen to him for two weeks yeah. in pre-production. Got it. Damn, yeah. the studios just made this one really hard. <laughs> it's harder than it. And speaking of studios, you know this one was made for twenty-four million. Did you did you see what it uh, grossed? Forty-two. Yeah, it, it only doubled down on its money, which is. Uh, it, Surprising. Yeah, it was kind of an art house film, I suppose, at the time. Well, considering the firepower behind this one too, and, and you know, you think of in the directors and the actors and those types of things, you know, you would have thought that would have pulled in more. But we've talked about movies from '91 in the early '90s before, and it's just you know there was just such a different variety of movies out there, and there were there there weren't. A lot of the huge blockbusters. This was pre second, in, you know, um, incarnation of Star Wars, right. and you know, before a lot of superhero movies. So you probably had a lot of movies that were kind of, you know, hey, if you doubled your money, tripled your money, you know, you, you'd be all right. Yeah, you did well, but. And I would say probably don't sleep on the fact that Terry Gilliam is the director of this. And by the way, this is the first director that we've had multiple um, featured yep. on the podcast. We did 12 Monkeys last season. Um, but he's he's not the biggest name, even though we know him. Um, so I think that's a, a factor. But the other side of that coin is it had Robin Williams in it. And Robin Williams at this point was getting to his wheelhouse where everything he touched was making a ton of money. Right, and and it, you might have had some Robin Williams fatigue already setting in. Yeah, because then I, I don't know. Do we want to get into Robin Williams this early? Um, we can, or we can save it. Well, well, well let's go ahead and jump in. There. Okay, let's okay. go ahead and jump in there. And I mean, obviously, everybody knows who he is, and everyone knows he started as Mork, started on Happy Days, all that kind of right. stuff. But his movie career, really, I have it categorized into like three different sections. Mm-hmm. And so you have his kind of like part one early movie career. Where you had Popeye, World According to Guard, right. Moscow and the Hudson, Club Paradise. Okay, but not great movies. Right. Although I would say his most underrated movie is in that group. I think it's Moscow and the Hudson. Moscow and the Hudson? I yeah. think it's the most underrated yeah, and, movie. And, and these weren't bad movies. No, I mean, no. they just weren't great. Right. But then in 90, or excuse me, in 87, he has the breakthrough. Good Morning Vietnam. Good Morning Vietnam. Right. And and then he goes on, and just bear with me as I go through this list, because I, I this got is, the same stuff right now. You got the same stuff. Every, okay, 80, and I'm not even every movie, so you can right, throw in the right. ones that I, I, I okay. ignored if you think they were bad. 87, Good Morning Vietnam. 88, Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Munchausen, yeah. which also was Terry Gilliam. Uh, also by Terry Gilliam. And also Amanda Plummer was in that. Yes. Um, so that's um, 88. 89, Dead Poets Society, Mm -hmm. 90, Awakenings, Mm -hmm. 91, Fisher King and Hook, Mm -hmm. 92, Aladdin, 93, Mrs. Doubtfire, Mm -hmm. 94, Jumanji, Mm -hmm. excuse me, 94, I didn't have a big one. He took a break right. for a second, did some coke, whatever he does. Danced <laughs> um, around on the, on the desk at Letterman or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 90, 95, Jumanji, 96, Birdcage, 97, Goodwill Hunting, 98, Patch Adams. We're talking 10 years where every year except for one, huge hit. Huge movie hit. Huge movie. And right. good movies. Right. 
Right. There's not really a stinker in there. Yeah. I'm not a big Mrs. Doubtfire fan, but it's Me not either. a stinker. Yeah. No, I, I, I never really liked the movie all that much, but I, I understand its appeal. Right. Same with right. Hook. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess he did have a couple of stinkers in there because he did Toys and he did Jack and those were not What really was the good. one by Cent- by Centennial Man? Was that in this Something era? like, yeah, something, yeah. It, yeah. But, so. but, but, but then we get, to, so that's uh, phase two. Right. Then we get to phase three. So essentially, let's say turn of the century 2000s. Lots of movies. Really, the only thing, though, that really stands out to me that I've enjoyed is The Night at the Museum. He's, and he's a very small part of that. Right, Teddy Roosevelt. But he's great in that. He is. The other one that I like of his from that era is Insomnia with um, yeah. Al Pacino. I think that one is No, that, that that was uh, Christopher Nolan, wasn't it? I think that's I think right. I think it was an early I Christopher Nolan right. movie. I think that's yeah. right. Yeah. We need to put him on the list. We, yeah. We, but he, we don't, he, has a, he doesn't have movies from the 90s, though. <laughs> right, right. Oh. But, but so, I mean, Robin Williams, I think he's had a very interesting career. Um, and, of course, it's over now. Um, but with the movies, because he did have his, like, big peak. And he didn't fall too far, but he was still bankable. And he was still doing stuff. And, it like, we've talked about, like, as much as he wanted to do, he could do. Right. Obviously, right. if somebody wanted to write him a role, he could do it. If he, I mean, he, he easily, I'm sure, he turned down things that were tossed to him that he didn't want to do. Right. I mean, I, well, and that's what happens, um, at least I've heard, because uh, it's never happened to me, but you have that type of success doing the movies that, you know, are going to get the uh, critical acclaim, are going to hit the box office, cash register, but then you get to the point where it's like, ooh, I want to do stuff that, like, is different or more, you know, theatrical. And, mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of people know this, but, you know, Robin Williams, you know, was a very well-trained actor, classic actor. You know, yes. he, he studied at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. And now, have you ever heard the story about while he when he was at Juilliard? I don't know this one. Okay, and I don't know if it's true, and I tried to Google it, and I couldn't find it, but I've heard this story before that there was a point when he was at Juilliard where the teachers were like, there's nothing more we can teach you. Mm. You know, it's like, you can do it all. Yeah. Comedy, yeah. drama, right. whatever, you can do it all. Um, so so anyway, we, we'll probably, I'm sure we'll talk more about Robin Williams later. Um, but th- you talked about the movie starting with... Uh, well, I want to ask you before we get yeah. to that. What's your favorite Robin Williams movie? Of all time? Of all time. Or like top three. Well, I mean, Good Will Hunting is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh-huh. So, I, I mean, I think that would have to be that. Um, Awakenings, Him yeah, and De Niro, really, really I thought it, thought it was really great. Um I think Good Morning Vietnam is my favorite. I mean, Good Morning Vietnam, kind of, you can't, and, and I, I mean, I, I, the whole reason to watch Aladdin, yes. at least his version, yes. I mean, he, he's hilarious. He's fantastic. And, and he's, I, I saw Aladdin uh, when we were in New York a few years ago on Broadway, and the genie role in Aladdin, what it became because of Robin Williams, mm-hmm. it single-handedly changed that character. Not only did it single-handedly change that character, but do you know that Robin Williams, when he did Aladdin, he was one of the first major superstars to do, like, voiceover work. Mm-hmm. And, of course, now they all do it. Right, right. Well, and a lot of them shied away from it because of the contract that you would have to sign with Disney in terms of using your voice later and what yeah. you would get paid and all of that stuff. So he, he was kind of groundbreaking with that. And now, you know, as we talked about before, everybody wants in on that because, you know, it's a massive piece of exposure. Disney's going to get you out there. You're going to make money you're gonna, and you're it's gonna not a lot of You're going to stack paper work. like crazy. So, yeah. yeah I mean, good. they're they're essentially doing a podcast. Yeah, basically. With, yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, 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 Disney. <laughs> Looking at you. Come on. <laughs> Come on. We need some Disney dollars. <laughs> but, uh, well, um, 
you, you talked about how the movie started and the the DJ. Yeah. And so do it's really popping. It's really hot. He's you know talking to people left and right. But what happens is, and of course the DJ is played by Jeff Bridges. Right. He's a great actor. Great actor. And and quickly, Jeff Bridges in this movie looks just like Tom Cruise in Magnolia. I don't know if you noticed that or if you remember that. It's that. It's that. It's, it's the long pullback long ponytail pull from the nineties that we talked know, about. That we talked it. about uh, uh, last season. And that I mean that was a thing. Uh, but he's, he's he's railing on his callers. He's insulting them, and he has this one caller that calls in. Um, this guy named Edwin. Mm-hmm. And Edwin's just kind of quiet, and he's making fun of him. Oh, hey, Edwin, I haven't heard you from you since last week, and blah, blah, blah. And Edwin's kind of complaining about how he can't get a date or all those types of things. He's slamming on the yuppies. and Yeah, and, and uh, the DJ, whose name is Jack. Right. Jack in this movie. He tells, he tells Edwin a bunch of things, and then at the end he says, the yuppies must be stopped before it's too late. It's us versus them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Jack closes his show. He's still real arrogant. He's, like, working on, like, a TV show or something like that. Goes back to his apartment. His penthouse apartment with, and, with its insanely lavish by 90s oh, yeah. standards. Super cool. He's got his hot wife. They're sitting there drinking some wine. He's, and, he's, he's got, like, 60 CDs. Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. At least it would have been back he, then. He hadn't joined Columbia House yet. <laughs> no. No, he had not. Um but then he's, you know, he's all excited about how he's getting ready to do this TV show where he's, he's, he's not only people are going to hear his voice, but they're going to see his face. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's at cloud nine, top of his profession, very narcissistic, very much a jerk, but he's, he's made it and he's sitting there. He's just kind of flipping through the channels. He's got like three or four TVs and he sees a breaking news story. Right. And this is an interesting thing about this movie because this is something that would not happen in modern times because he sees this story about a guy who shoots up a restaurant bar and then kills himself, and he realizes that it's Edwin. He realizes that this is caller, and he immediately knows that he went out and did it because of the conversation that they had had. Now, the reason this wouldn't happen in modern times is you would never find out about something like that on on the, the TV news. Like, somebody would have already called him. He would have been getting lit up by press media, whatever. Well, and there's a little bit of a flaw here in this movie, and there's not very many, but there's a little flaw because while he's watching the TV, the news anchor, the special reporter, whomever, says Jack's... What's his last name? Do you remember? I don't remember. I don't know. Sparrow. Sparrow, Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow's representatives... You know, right. say they're real. This it was a very unfortunate event. But regardless, the press had already gotten a statement from his representatives, but yet his representatives yeah. had not even called him, which I think is a bit unrealistic. Yeah, I missed that. I missed yeah. that little piece in there. But that's exactly right. That's yeah. that's kind of a miss. But so anyway, that's what happens. And yeah. so and he's a, a big theme in this film is the narcissism of Jack. Right, like that's key and core to his character. He's a very narcissistic character, but he also. Regardless of how narcissistic he is, he does is impacted by this. He feels something by this, yeah. and and so it 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 kind of spirals him downward a, a little bit. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and it's and and Jeff Bridges has played this character 
multiple times Correct. before. This Correct. kind of person who, maybe not narcissistic, but maybe prideful, maybe whatever, but kind of has to humble himself a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe, and, and that's really the theme of this movie is because what happens is it cuts to three years in the future. And, and by now he's, you know, not in the penthouse. He's not on the radio. He's got a new girlfriend. Now, now this is another part where this movie can never be remade now because his girlfriend, Mercedes Rule, runs a video store. Runs a video store. Couldn't do that now. Nope, nope. What would it be now? Would a, a taco place? I, <laughs> I don't. Yeah. What would it? What would it be? Would, would she own a T-Mobile store or, a, or like a, like one of those places that repairs the cracks in your cell phone? Yeah, yeah, or maybe like so. That? That's right. Sells cell phone accessories. Uh-huh. And they've and and you know one of the first sequences we see with them at the video store because they've got the video store and they live above it. But somebody you know they're in in the in the porn room right. So where you go back in the back and you rent the porn uh, tapes and. Spoiler alert, this might not be the first porn tape movie that we have this season. Um, but anyway, like that's another thing that, that you wouldn't see anymore, right? And well, I have another spoiler alert, too. Yeah? Go. Oh. Is during this scene that you're talking about, he, he's out in the, the area where there are videos, and some lady's like, asking him questions about all these videos. And it's just kind of like this build-up scene where he's just like kind of like, get on my face, panic, panic. Right, 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 right. And, and one of the things that she asked for is a good comedy with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn. Uh, yes, yes. That's so right. we might have one of those coming, that too. That might be coming. <laughs> I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, that's good. No, and, and another little fun thing about this, Terry Gilliam, who directed this movie, kind of does some self-representation there. On the outside of the video store, there's a movie poster for The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which he directed. And in... The office where Mercedes Rule is, there's a poster of Brazil, which he also directed. So I always love seeing those things where a director slides in a little bit of something extra for the people paying attention. Well, here's something else that's interesting, and we're not going to go real deep into Terry Gilliam here because we did that with 12 Monkeys. But did you realize that this is the second movie that Terry Gilliam's directed about the Holy Grail? Oh, that's a great point. Great, great point. Yes, yes. Yeah, because what happens next in the story is he, he, Jeff Bridges, he he gets drunk, he gets hammered, he like goes out and he's like thinking about killing himself, and he's and he you know puts like some concrete boots or concrete concrete blocks on his shoes. He's gonna jump into the you know East River. Uh, and then, like, all of a sudden, and this is always, this is kind of weird in this, this is, movie, these, the, the, the thugs. This is a questionable sequence, right? Where yeah. we got thugs driving up in their Jeep, and they're like the least thuggish thug dude you would ever see. Oh, they're because, like 5'6", 140. Right, back. and they're, they're just regular white dudes who are mad about the bums, and we're going to do a little street vigilante justice on the bums. Get out of here. We don't want to see you when we look out our windows. Yeah, and so, and they have gasoline. <laughs> Come on, it's a bit right. much. We we can't kill you. We can't beat you down. But you know what we can do? We can light a match. We, we can burn, burning stuff. We got that. <laughs> it just seemed yeah, it seemed a little extreme. Now, granted, you know, early '90s New York is not what New York is today. Correct. Correct. You yes. know, I mean, yeah. So I, I don't know if it was that extreme, but but anyway, so they they like you know start beating up Jeff Bridges because they think he's a bum. They throw some gasoline on him. Next thing we know, we get like this heroic bum played by Robin Williams. Perry, Perry. he's caught at this point in the movie, comes up and saves him with those, all his other bum friends. But what we find out is that Perry is delusional, mm-hmm. and we'll talk about why here in a moment if you if you don't already know. But he sees himself as a knight, and essentially and eventually he asks. 
and tells Jack, that's Jeff Bridges' character, that he's the chosen one to help him retrieve the Holy Grail from some, like, rich dude's house and on the Upper East Side. Right, right. So that's, you know, our two whole, our second Terry Gilliam Holy Grail movie. Yeah, that's it. And, and this was actually the first Terry Gilliam movie that he directed without any members of Monty Python in it. And it's also the first movie that he ever directed where he had no... Input on the, he did not write or have any input on the script. There's only one scene in this whole movie that he changed from the the, uh-huh. the, the original script. Right, right, that's yeah. right. Uh, but you know, I mean, it's 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 actually for a movie that that's actually like was very well received critically. You know, mm-hmm. we talked earlier that it didn't do a lot at the box office, but. It actually had five Oscar nominations. Five Oscar nominations. Um, Robin Williams was nominated for Best Actor, and we went through this last season. But you know, he lost to Anthony Hopkins. We also had Robert De Niro from Cape Fear, which we did. Warren Beatty from Bugsy, and Nick Nolte from The Prince of Tides. For crying out loud, again, it's back. Um, it also <laughs> was nominated for original screenplay, art and set direction, um, original score. And the original score this year was kind of awesome. It, it had some some heavy hitters because uh, Beauty and the Beast won, um, composed by Alan Menken. Bugsy was composed by the great Ennio Morricone, um, and JFK by John Williams. And then um, you know George Fenton did this original score, and and again Prince of Tides was somehow nominated in there too. Whatever. Um, but you know it, it was a great year for movies. Ninety one. No, it, re- it really was. And, the, and it did win one, Mercedes Rule. And Mercedes Rule won for Supporting Actress. I, I was going to come back to her, yeah, because she won for Supporting Actress. Now, we don't see a lot of Mercedes Rule. And she's actually been working. She's done a lot of things. And, um, you know, but she kind of was at a hot spot in her career at this point. But, I mean, she's actually, you know, she's won a Tony for Lost in Yonkers actually in 91. She's nominated for two other Tonys. She not only won the Oscar for this performance, but she also won the Golden Globe. Golden Globe, yeah. But really, her movie filmography, she was in Big, Married yes. to the Mob, Fisher King, Lost in Yonkers. Well, so... And that's about... So it. here's the thing about Mercedes Rules. When I watched this the first time, I thought, okay, good, fine, awesome. When I watched it as a middle-aged guy, uh, I was like, oh, my God, Mercedes Rule, 43-year-old sex pot. I mean, like, come on. Yeah. But she she's great in it, and I loved her, and I, I found myself watching it thinking... Um, I kind of wish that she had played, uh, had been cast in Goodfellas instead of Lorraine Bracco, because that would have been better. Um, but then I wondered, is she really a good actress or not? Because she played, she's from Queens, she's a New Yorker, and she plays a lot of these New York type parts, right? Married to the Mob, yeah. Lost in Yonkers. Yeah. I mean, like, so, I mean, she's great, but maybe she doesn't have a lot of range. I don't know. I loved her in this movie. I'm, whatever else happens. Who cares? She's great in this movie, yeah, she's, and she's done some great stuff. I, no, I thought it was very well-deserving, and it's, it's funny because it was one of those things I'd actually read that before I watched the movie. Um, if I wouldn't have known that she had won the Oscar mm-hmm. and watched the movie, I, I don't know how much she would have stood out to me because there's so many other very strong performances. I agree. And supporting actor and actress is is the biggest wild card on Oscar night, right? Like, you never really know. Is it going to be a career achievement? Is it going to be a small part that somebody gets rewarded for? Is it going to be something that, that the Academy kind of latches onto? Yeah. Who knows? But I, this is deserving, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Once I, you know, like, when I when I watched it with that context, I I paid more attention to her. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, really, I mean, she's sharing the screen with Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams. Right. And they're going to steal the show. Um but I pay more attention to her knowing it because I wanted to know was she worthy. 
I think she was. No, I, I think, don't know who all she, you know. I me. looked at it. I, I, I didn't write notes on this. I glanced at it. Yeah. It wasn't anything that blew me away. I think she's totally worthy. Oh, yeah. I, I, I really appreciated her performance. I did too. Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, you know, there's a lot of other, like, just kind of, like, like smaller part people in this movie. Like, um, like David Hyde Pierce from it's, Frasier. Yes. How is he not on more stuff? He's hilarious and understated. He's so good. Well, he has Frasier money. He doesn't have to do anything I guess. Else. I guess. <laughs> it's like, if I had Frasier money, if you had Frasier money, would you work? Probably not. Yeah. Exactly. Right, right. No, he, I think he plays like Jack's agent or something like that. Right, Harry right. Shearer, Harry Shearer from this. Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. and this this is what's so funny. I love that he gets a credit for this because he actually plays a character in a sitcom that Jack and his girlfriend Mercedes Rule are watching on TV. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's not even in the movie. He's like, a, he's, yeah, yeah, he's like a sitcom, uh, kind of like Rodney Dangerfield and uh, uh, Natural Born Killers. Natural Born Killers. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, now we have somebody else who's made their second appearance yes. on our podcast. Yes. Albeit in supporting roles, which he does very, very well, but mm-hmm. Tom, Tom Waits, Waits. has mm-hmm. about a five-minute, ten-minute appearance right. in this one. And of course, yeah, you remember him from Dracula. So it's a good, a good little cast, you know. Even like side people, a lot of other people you recognize. Um, the one person though that I didn't know who they were, but I just you know kept um, looking them up and looked at their career was Michael Jeter. Yeah, yeah. Did you know much about Michael Jeter? And no, Michael Jeter is the person that does all the kind of Broadway songs. and yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been in a ton of stuff, and, and like you know him, but you don't know him. Yeah. And he is not related to G- to Derek. No, 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 no. And it's great because throughout this song, now the, the Earth, sorry, I gave that one away. Throughout this movie, uh, they keep singing that song. What was it? Right, I, I like New York in June. Yeah. I, I like, this could actually, the first one, June, right? Right, this could be called, um, you know, the Fisher King and then I like New York in June in quotations actually. Oh yeah, it, that does get a little old. Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I think I read is that um, the studio could not get the rights to that song from whoever produced it, mm-hmm. or maybe it's not this song, but there was one of the songs that were in this movie, one of the theater things because they do a couple of them. Right. You know, they the, they repeat that one over and over. But um, the composer wouldn't give them the rights. Okay. But Michael Jeter knew the composer. Because I guess he did work on Broadway, and that's the only reason they got the rights and wow. were able to put it into the song. Now, I don't think it was this song. I think it was a different song that they did. Maybe it was a song he did when he did the uh, singing telegram. Right? Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. sure. Well, th- and so Michael Jeter, so that speeds us up a little bit. But just quickly to just give it a little nuts, bolts plot, you know, yeah. um, ultimately um, Jeff Bridges' character Jack realizes that Robin Williams' character Perry is the husband of of a woman who was shot by his caller who went nuts at this Edwin Edwin it went nuts at this bar and so he kind of realizes that and so again um his conscience kind of gets the better of him and he wants to befriend Perry and he wants to sort of somehow figure out a way to make amends and as they progress through this we realize that Perry sort of follows this lady um, every day, he he knows what time she gets off work. He knows she's going to stop by, uh, you know, a newsstand. She might buy a trashy paperback. She's going to get on a particular train, and so he tries to help set them up. Uh, it's a it's a redemption. And, yeah, and, and he and, and and Jack, the Jeff Bridges character, is very honest with Mercedes Rule. I forget what her name was in this movie. Ann. Ann. That's right. Uh, he very you know honest. I'm doing this because I need the redemption. Right. I I, I he still has so much guilt from like being the person that mm-hmm. you know told Edwin what he told him that forced you know that 
you know, had him lead to the, the mass murder. And I think murder. one of the things about Anne's character that is so good is she loves him with everything she's got because he's not working and he is not easy to live with, but she is 100% supportive of him on this sort of crusade oh, yeah. that he's going on. Well, yeah, absolutely. And there's even a p- part later in the movie where, like, you know, she just, he's like, why do you put up with me or something like that? And she's just like, because I love you. Right, right. Yeah, and, and, and she pulls that off really well. But, um, but yeah, it, it, he he feels like if he could help out Perry, that it'll somehow make amends for what – and he knows Perry's insane. Right. But here's what's interesting. As he gets to know Perry and Perry more, and this is just a fascinating piece of art, I think, within this movie, he starts either thinking, realizing, wondering, and even the crazy guy Perry and the other crazy people start wondering, Jack, are you crazy too? Right, right. Yeah. You know, which which kind of takes the movie to a whole other level of just, you know, what are they doing? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this one scene, and the only reason I'm going to bring it up is because, you know, it's, it's going to uh, make a little bit more sense later. But there's this one scene where um, they're in Central Park at night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Perry's completely crazy. He takes off all his clothes. So you get Robin Williams running around naked, his junk flopping in the air. And he's like, lay down on the with me and watch. We'll, we'll stare at the clouds and watch them separate. And, and like Jeff Bridges is like you're crazy, right. what, you know. It's but he has these like great lines. So a, a couple things because this is a great scene. I want to decompose the scene a little. Okay. Bit. Okay. So a couple things. Number one, um, they had a lot of problems filming this scene because there were so many people around that wanted to like, and there were people that were like kind of like making noise and stuff like that. So you had that one issue, even right. though it was nighttime in, in Central Park. Number two, the studio had serious concerns. Let me know if you heard this one. The studio had serious concerns that a naked Robin Williams would turn off the audience so much because he's so hairy. Well, so I've always known that Robin Williams is super hairy, and I totally – I hadn't heard that, but it makes sense because Robin Williams is a hairy dude. Like, you watch him in movies. He's got his shirt unbuttoned or whatever. Like, when he was Popeye, the hair is just bulging out, Like right? Like, he's hairy. Yeah, and the so studio makes, was worried about it. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, I, I, I in discussing this, um, one person told me that the first – Male penis they ever saw was Robin Williams in this movie. I'm not. But it's not the first today. time we see his penis. No, but that's the first we see time. it in a World According to Garp. Yes. I mean, he pretty much whoops it out in this first movie. Yes, yes. But this is like like someone that I know said that, that was the first man's penis I ever saw. Was Robin Williams in Fisher King? <laughs> Do we want to disclose who that person was? I, I, I am going to uh, protect anonymity. <laughs> that's what you get on the podcast. Yes, we will not. We will not share that. Well, and here's the other interesting thing. So that whole scene was about staring at the clouds that caused them to break right. up. And if I remember, didn't Jeff Bridges do that in that Goats movie? What was that? Oh, yeah, The Man Who Stared Goats. He's, yeah, he's a cloud breaker. Yeah, he's a cloud, cloud breaker. breaker. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, there's it's, a, it's just a lot of interesting scenes, and they're going to tie this scene back at the end of the movie yes. when we do that. But it's the, it's, the, it's the redeeming scene at the end of this movie, I think. Yeah. I think the ending is a little weak in a couple of spots, but right. the, the sequence in Central Park is, is redeeming. Yeah, and this is also when we get exposed to the Red Knight for yes. the first time, I mm-hmm. think, which is kind of weird. It is weird. It is very, very, very weird. Terry Gilliam. Yes, yes, it is very Terry Gilliam, and it's a figment of the Robin Williams imagination. He sees this Red Knight coming for him, and he and it freaks him out. Like, like he legitimately is freaked out, and. Um, is running from him, and and Bridges is like, "What is wrong with you? Like, dude, what the hell's? What are you doing?" And they 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 yeah. run they run through, and I, I well, think, that, one, I think they end up you, at Central Park, right? Like that's where they end yeah, after they've been chased. Maybe, yeah, I think so. And one thing you didn't mention, like, so you know, when when 
Robin Williams' wife was murdered in the the um, mass Babbitt's. murder. Babbitt's was the uh, name of the bar or whatever, right? That, yeah, something like that. It was like a trendy, yuppie restaurant. Right. Um, uh, he went into like a mental comatose. Yes. For a period of time after that. Yeah. And, and then he finally came out of this comatose, but he was crazy. And I forget what – his name is not Perry – no, he right. has a regular name. He has a regular name, but Perry, Perry, name. Perry just kind of became his, like, I don't know, like, the, just whatever he called himself on his, you know, search for the Holy Grail. And and that sequence in Central Park, the first one where he's laying there naked, that's where he tells uh, Jack the story of the Fisher King, right? Like, yes. that's where he tells him the whole, like, the, the Fisher King story. Which essentially, I'm not going to go through the whole story. Number one, I don't remember it. Number two, it's, it's, it wasn't that great it's, of a story. It's, right. It's it about was, a king. He goes out and he's got to hunt and whatever. He finds the Holy Grail. and No, he, he's he, looking he's for the Holy Grail. He doesn't Grail. find it. He doesn't find it. He ends up being uh, maimed, infirm. He comes back and then the, this this fool comes in and he, he, do you want some water? Yes, I really want some water. He just thinks he's a fool. He takes the water and his hand gets better. And uh, he realizes this fool has the Holy Grail. And uh, um, yeah, I, I, I'm still trying to figure out what that story means. Yeah, and it, 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 something like you're, the, you know, something about you're the Fisher King. Like, I don't really get it. I did, and to be fair to all of our listeners, I did not do the necessary research oh, to dig into that. Hmm. Is the Fisher King a? Uh, I don't know what the right word would be, but is it a reference to Jesus because he was a fisher of men and he's the king of the Jews? Maybe. I also think there's some reference to it in a Shakespearean. Play. I think I read something about Thou that. art the fisher of men, <laughs> and ye are the... I got something like that on That's the beauty of art, man. You take it for whatever you want it to be. <laughs> yeah, I just made that up. But, um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, no, no, but one thing about Perry, though, that's kind of annoying. It's it's funny at some points, but it's kind of annoying. I mean, he talks about bowel movements, like the whole movie. Well, one of the things... <laughs> what is it he says in that first sequence? He's like, something everybody needs, and he's, he's like, a good bowel movement and a navy blue blazer. Or, you yeah. Know. He, he talks about bowel movements like three or four times, sometimes jokingly, sometimes very serious, like how great it must feel. And listen, I agree with all of it. Right. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, right. I agree with them, but it's just kind of like, all right, it's kind of, yeah. But but I think that's one of the beautiful things about this movie is like I'm guilty of Robin Williams fatigue like everybody else. But when I watch this movie, it's Robin Williams, but it's actually one of his more subdued, crazy performances. He's not over the top. Like, he does some of his Robin Williams stuff, and, like, at one point he says he's got a heart on the size of Florida, which is pretty funny. Um, but he's not, I mean, he's not Adrian Cronauer in Good Morning Vietnam, where he's just nonstop, just yeah. hammering you the well, whole time. Well, funny thing was, this was actually a very serious role for him, and there are actually several times where Terry Gilliam has talked about in um, different interviews and whatnot that there were scenes where Robin Williams was so worked up, it's like nobody would approach him. Because, I mean, Robin Williams is like a, a strong man. I right, mean, when right. he, you see it when he's naked. He's like a, you know, and just where he gets very intense and very mm-hmm. into his roles. And I, I read this one story that during the filming of this movie, because it was such a serious role and it was kind of taxing him some, is that one night he just decides to go to some, like, comedy place in, in Manhattan somewhere and he does, like, a hour-long, complete, impromptu stand-up show. And, like, Jeff Bridges is there. He brings his brother Bo. Mm. You know, Terry Gillian goes. A bunch of the people go. And Ron Williams just completely impromptu for, like, 45 minutes to an hour, just, you know, off-the-wall comedy. And somebody asked Robin Williams about it at one point while he was still alive. And he was just like, I just need to get my comedy out. Right. You know, it's like this serious role. But but here's something that, you know, kind of the same vein of Robin Williams and just being able to kind of balance, like, the serious and the absurd, and I and I think this is kind of interesting, and maybe one of those things that is is missed about him because 
man, everybody's so serious these days and nobody can take a joke and everybody gets offended and you know they don't realize that, hey, maybe one moment I need to be really serious about something, but the next moment I can be silly about right. it That's and right. I need that balance. Do you know about the Steven Spielberg story? No. When Steven Spielberg, and because you know they knew each other, of course, um, when Steven Spielberg was filming Schindler's List, mm-hmm. probably the most intensely serious movie of all time. Right. I mean, right up there with it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't know if it was every week, every two weeks, something like that. Robin Williams, who had nothing to do with Schindler's List, would call up Steven Spielberg and just do 15 minutes of like comedy just for him. Just clown him on the phone just with him? Just clown him on the phone yeah, with him. That's awesome. And Spielberg has talked about how like that got me through the movie. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. need, I just, and, and you know, just Robin's on the phone for you. Oh, thank goodness. I need it. I need to get away from this for a second. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, you know, that's, you know, the good thing about Robin Williams because he wasn't just like a complete buffoon comedian. He understood the full range and spectrum of emotions, I think. Well, and I think, you know, I was going to get into this at some point in this pod and I think it's worthy to just mention it now and you talk about Robin Williams. I, I think... I have a real soft spot for people who are suicidal or have suicidal feelings, and it's such a tragedy. And, you know, I, I mean, so many people feel so unloved, unworthy, and then, like, you hear a story like that, like, this is a guy who, who didn't value his life enough, and yet, you know, he's making people feel better. He's making people get through their work. And, it's, and mental illness is such a harsh thing to deal with and I think this is a big theme through this movie and it's interesting to watch it in retrospect with after Robin Williams death watching the mental illness understanding what he dealt with it's it's a it's a piece that I really have a, a significant um passion for and and I feel really you know I have a lot of feelings about it well in this movie actually we talked earlier about how it was a little maybe ahead of its time in a lot of different areas it actually very subtly addresses multiple social yes, issues. Yes. I mean, every. I mean, it, it, I mean, the 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 main catalyst in this movie is a mass shooting. Right. This is pre Columbine. Correct. Um. You know. It, it, you know. I know these days that seems like oh it happens all the time, but it's like it didn't happen a lot back then. We didn't hear about it. Right. Like, right. It we may, didn't hear about it. Right. We didn't hear about it. It may have happened period, but it wasn't a big deal. It, it wasn't a big thing. A, a, it's always a big deal. It didn't happen often. And but you also had you know ho- dealing with homelessness. Yes, as a major issue, mental illness. Mental illness. The, the, Amanda Plummer's character is kind of like this She's weird Aspergery girl. Yeah, exactly. And 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 even even through the Jack DJ character, just the influence of mass media. Correct. Um, you know, there's just a lot of lot of issues um, being addressed, uh, even including Broadway show tunes. Yes, yes. <laughs> which which somebody needs to address. We got to get it. We somebody's got to. Somebody's. We need to talk more about those. Uh, <laughs> but, but no, in all seriousness, I, I, I you know, it, it is a very interesting thing, and and they weave it all together pretty well because even towards um, the end of the movie, and I know I'm jumping ahead, and we'll get back to the the normal plot. But you know, they they talk to Jeff Bridges about like making a TV a sitcom about homeless people. Yeah, yeah. Like it was like a funny thing. It, yeah. What was the oh gosh? What was the name of that? It was. Oh, it was, was bad. It was a bad. It was. It was bad even for ninety one. Yeah. Well, let's 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 talk about Jeff Bridges for okay. A All right. Well, we well let, let, we we we've talked a lot about Robin Williams. So just a few more quick things about Robin Williams. I mean, obviously, the guy's, like, super decorated. He's won tons of Golden Globes. I think he won, like, two or three from Work and Mindy. Obviously, he won from Good Morning Vietnam, Aladdin, Miss Doubtfire. Um, this movie, actually, both main actors have a Cecil B. DeMille award. Yes, they do. Yeah, yeah, they're both have, pretty they both won that Golden Globe. Um, Robin Williams has Grammys, multiple Grammys for comedy albums. Mm-hmm. 
um, Emmys for TV appearances, and then Oscar for uh, Best Supporting Actor in Goodwill Hunting, and nominated four times. Um, you know, not only uh, this movie, but also Dead Poet Society and Good Morning Vietnam. So, so the guy's like one Tony mm-hmm. away oh, from an EGOT. And, and EGOT, and it's like, I think if you would still be around, that'd be a pretty easy pull. He, I mean, could you imagine a revival of the Birdcage on the stage? He totally would. Oh, you totally kill it. Yeah, he, and he would probably only need to do like a week's worth of shows and Correct. He'd, get, he'd get the Tony for it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, I, so yeah, I want to compare and contrast their awards careers after we get through the uh, Jeff Bridges talk. And so we'll, we'll get to Jeff Bridges and then we'll get to their Oscars and uh, um, Golden Globes. So Jeff Bridges, uh, number one, he has the same shirt on in this movie. It's like a baseball t-shirt that yes. he wears. He wears in, it in Lebowski. He wears it in Lebowski too. Yes. But I mean, Jeff Bridges, I mean, he's been around for a long time. I mean, I think he had his first acting gig when he was like two or three years old on his dad's show. He's Hollywood royalty. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, de- most definitely. And, and and But he's also, you know, earned his own place as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Now, go, go ahead. ahead. Now, well, so my Jeff Bridges take is this. Like, there is Jeff Bridges before Lebowski, and there's Jeff Bridges after Lebowski. Because Jeff Bridges before Lebowski, he's a lot of the character that you see in Fisher King. And post-Lebowski... He's the dude in almost everything. Like, I just watched Bad Times at the El Royale, and he's not really the dude, but he's still kind of the dude. Well, and he's gotten critical acclaim both before and after this yes. movie. I mean, he's been o- nominated for, like, seven Oscars. That's right. Now, so, he's only won one for Crazy Heart back in t- 2010. Right, so or let's do that, this. No, yeah. no, 2010. But he, yeah. he's won, he won for Crazy Heart, so let's do this. Who has more Oscar nominations, Robin Williams or Jeff Bridges? Well, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges has seven. Robin Williams has four. Uh, Four, right? Yeah. So, who has more Golden Globe nominations and wins? Um, no, I don't know that. I didn't, um, but it might be, you know, Bridges again. It is Robin Williams. Robin Williams was nominated twelve times for Golden Globes and won six of them. Well, but um, how much of that has to do with like TV and stuff like that? Well, it's not that much. He did win one for Mork and Mindy, but he won. No, he won. He won three for Golden Globes for Mork and Mindy. Oh, did he? Two, okay, two. He won seventy-eight and eighty. Okay, he won for Mork but, and Mindy. But, but he also won some for. Um, acting Oscars where, like, he won for this film a Golden Globe because it was nominated as a comedy or musical, whereas, the you know, the Oscars are just acting general. Yeah, right? that's the thing about the Golden Globe. It's, they essentially have two Best Actors and two Best Actresses awards. Right. Yeah. But, but you're right, right. So to your point, Jeff Bridges has been nominated seven times. He, he uh, somehow was not nominated for King Kong. I don't know how that's even possible. Uh, yeah, that, that movie's classic. <laughs> um, Hell or High Water, True Grit, Crazy Heart, The Contender, Starman... Thunderbolt and Lightfoot in the Last Picture Show. So he's Hell not, I, he was not Hell or High Water. Did you say that one? That's one of my favorite movies of the last five years. You, you know, I, I I haven't seen it. I want to see it because it was right in my wheelhouse. But it is, I have not it seen is, it. When you watch it, it's one of the best movies I've seen in the last five years. It's one of my very favorites. He, he also has an Emmy nomination, which I don't know what that's for. I don't know because he other than like Saturday Night Live and stuff like that. I don't know how much TV he's actually done, but. You know, and he's been in other good movies. I mean, Last American Hero, Tron, Against All Odds, mm-hmm. Fabulous Baker Boys was a great, it's great. movie. It's it a great, great movie. movie. Um, you know, uh, The Contender. Contender's good. He's great in True Grit. I mean, oh, yeah. he's still kind of the dude, but he's awesome. Yeah. I, I prefer the, the, the remake wait, of True no, wait, Grit wait, to the original. Wait, 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 wait. I was going to try to stop you before you even got that sentence out. No, I'm telling you. You you prefer, and listen, I, I've seen both of them, but you're going you're gonna to put out there to the public... You prefer the Jeff Bridges True Grit to the John Wayne True I do. Grit. I'm, t- I'm, I'm, I'll take that hot take. That's, I'm giving it to you. 
All right. Well, the podcast is now concluded for eternity, <laughs> and uh, we'll be moving on with separate partners. Where uh, Jim's going to keep doing movies from the '90s, and I think I'm going to do a series on John Wayne. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you need to do, and, and we'll compare the westerns to uh, military movies. Okay, perfect. My mine will last like four episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Because a lot of people don't remember those movies. No, no. And I love John Wayne. And, and the original True Grit's great. But um, when I rewatched, this is a total tangent. When I rewatched <laughs> the original True Grit, it kind of looked like a cartoon with everybody in their, you know, their perfectly um, clean suits and perfect color. And, 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 you know, the Coen Brothers True Grit is, is actually like a Western. It looks real. So anyway, I, I love him in that. All right, I, I love all right, him. All right. We'll move on. We'll move on. Uh, what else you got on Jeff Bridges? I mean, family royalty. He he, he plays this like just very manly type character. Yeah. You know, I, I I I he's never at least anything that I've seen him in has been like kind of the the low man on the you know totem pole, no, low man no. on the food chain. He's very much always in command. He's always in command. You know, regardless of what it is, whether it's you know like like we talked about with Hell or High Water or. Or the, the, the new stuff, or the old stuff, or like even like Iceman Cometh, you know, old stuff. He's always the guy who's driving the car. Yeah, yeah, and 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 and, and even within the Fisher King, you know, even though you could call it a movie about redemption, it's still driven by his narcissism. Correct. You know, everything's just about him, and we see that happen because what his main goal is is he wants. We talked about you know uh, Robin Williams Perry having a crush on this girl played by Amanda Plummer. And Jeff Bridges' whole goal is to get them together, at least right. for a day. Right. And it's and it's not because he wants to do anything for Robin Williams altruistically. He wants to do it for himself. Yeah. So, you know, they, they he goes with them and he shows them this girl. And I want to talk about a scene in this movie that is, I think, Hollywood magic. And it's the sequence where they're following her to her train at Grand Central Terminal, which is just a, a beautiful old building in New York, iconic. Everybody's seen it. And so as he's kind of following her and she doesn't know he's behind him, all of a sudden the people in Grand Central all start waltzing as he's walking behind her. And, I mean, that is – before CGI, before green screens, it's Hollywood magic because they had to totally shut down Grand Central. They shut it down at like 8 o'clock, and, after the, and then they didn't reopen it until 5.30 in the morning when the next commuter trains were rolling. And they shot the sequence. They had lights outside of the windows so that way it, it looked like it was 5.30 p.m. or whatever. And they do this whole sequence where everybody's waltzing. And as soon as she walks through the terminal, everybody's back to being busy. And it's just regular Grand Central Terminal. It, it, it is a Hollywood gold scene, I think. Well, you know, earlier I mentioned that there was one scene um, from the original script that Terry Gilliam changed. That that was that the scene. Uh huh. This was the one scene that he actually changed. And the other interesting thing is, you know, most of those dancers obviously were extras, and some of them were people that were still coming off the train as they were closing the station. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Hey, we need more people. You want to yeah, be? You want to dance? Movie? Come dance on, in this movie. Let's do it." Uh, but yeah, no, it's a really it's a really powerful scene. You know, really beautifully orchestrated. And once again, to your point. You know, I, I miss those scenes where it actually took hundreds of real people yes. coordinating them together. Because, like, can you imagine what was happening behind the camera mm-hmm. during the scene and how just orchestrated it had to be? And you got to have your cameraman in the right place where they're catching the right moves, but yet they're not catching each other. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jim. It's, I, I it's, a, it's a brilliant Hollywood scene. No. 
and and they they go on to eventually um, Jeff Bridges and uh, you know Jack and Ann, you know because the video store they come up with this like fake promotion and they they call up Amanda Plummer. Um, who you said is kind of kind of square in this this flick? She's got this Asperger thing going on, or something. But isn't sort she of... like that in pretty much every movie? Yeah. So I'm I'm not a huge Amanda Plummer fan, to be honest with you. I mean, she's fine. She does a lot. You know, she's been in some stuff. You know, her most popular and iconic role is Honey Bunny in Pulp Fiction. But she's Hollywood royalty too because she's Christopher Plummer's daughter, yeah. Captain Von Trapp. I mean, for crying out loud. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, she's she's kind of weird in almost everything she does. Yeah, and I mean, and she's you know, and she was also in World According to Garp yep. with Williams. Yep. Um, you know, she's been in lots of stuff. I mean, she she did win a Tony Award for Agnes of God. Yes. So I mean, she's not completely unrecognized, but I, I agree with you. She's supporting actress material level B at best. Yeah, very much a typecast supporting actress. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah, very much. I mean, almost a character actor if mm-hmm. you want to, if you want to push it that far. No, I, I don't have anything wrong with her. I don't think she's bad, but it's just you know, I, you know, she's not. It's just not her ML. Right. Correct. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they get this date set up. Mm-hmm. Well, so so they try to set her up with a phone call, and she's having none of it because she's like, "Well, what do I have to do? I don't do I have to come in?" So I've never won anything before in my life. Right, right. And she's having none of it, and so yeah. she's she's content to kind of be a sad sack at this point. Yeah. And they, but they they do get her into the video store. Well, then we get Jeter involved to get her to the video store. Oh yeah, 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 we get yeah. That Jeter, great scene. That. One of the other great scenes in this movie. Oh yeah, the scene telegram. Yes, where he's yes. he's dressed as a woman and he's on, you know, and and he's got this big thick hairy mustache and it, it's over the top and they're riding the elevator with these people looking at him like, "What the hell?" And then he goes in and sings her this telegram about how she's won this, you know, video card. Yes, free rentals. Free rentals. Free rentals. And it's funny because when she actually shows up to claim her prize, she just wants to argue with Anne about, like, how many free rentals do I get? And she says something like, for a year. And she's like, so then after a year, you're going to charge me. I mean, she's so cynical. She's so cynical. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what they stage it to where um, Perry is, is working at the video store while, when she comes in. Yeah. And it's funny because I actually read a, li- I read a list online, and I'm not going to repeat it, but of all the movies that you actually oh, saw, saw that. on the yeah, video yeah, yeah. store. Yeah. But it's hilarious because Robin Williams is trying to help her out. And, like, um, she's, she's, who is she wanting? She's wanting a certain person's movie. I can't remember now. Um, Ethel Merman. Ethel she Merman. wants Ethel yeah, Merman. So it's Ethel Merman movie. I, I, right, again, super weird. Like, I just want the Ethel Merman movie in, in 1991. Yeah. And one of the gags that happens in this sequence that we see again is – they just keep knocking over the videos. Like she's yeah. knocking the videos and then Robin's knocking over the videos. And it's such a great blend of like comedy drama, yeah. Yeah. you know, suspense, all those kind of like, I mean, it's, 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 it's it, and this is one of those scenes where they just kind of weave in comedy and you don't even know what's happening until all of a sudden you're laughing. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. right. And uh, so ultimately they, they get her involved and they end up setting up this date with her and Robin Williams, and uh, so Jack and Anne are going to go out to dinner with them. Uh, because another thing that Robin Williams has done when you know Perry, when he follows her, is he knows she goes to this Asian restaurant and eats dumplings and always drops them. She tries to pick them up with the chopsticks, always Can't drops a it. dumpling. Can't do it. So they, they so they, they prep Robin for this. They prep Perry at at, uh, at, at Jack and Anne's house, and um, uh, I think Nate, you you want to talk about his attire right now. Yeah, so I, I don't even know where Jack gets the suit, but it's basically like a zoot suit from like the 20s or 30s. Um, it's five sizes, too big. 
He looks like David Byrne in the um, in the Talking Heads video. You, you know, the one uh, Once in a Lifetime where yeah. he's in that giant suit dancing around. Lifetime. But the best part is, like, the the sleeves on the coat are long and the pant legs are long. And so Jack's just stapling, stapling them, them together. Stapling them together. Like, no, nobody's going to notice. I'm never going to wear this suit again. Amanda Plummer is probably not even going to notice that there's no. staples in the suit either because no, she's no. so quirky. But, yeah, the, the suit was great. And he's, like, walking around. I mean, he literally looks like, you know, like some really bad pimp. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they go out to well. Actually, he he looks just like a New Yorker who has no money and is homeless. You've been in New York. You've seen these people who are wearing a, you know they've got on a jacket that's three sizes too big and they're just dressed. You know they just got this stuff for so, free. So so what? I mean, how does that work? I mean, do only big people give their clothes to the homeless, or are homeless really small? Homeless people? people are emaciated. I mean, do you ever see like a really big homeless person? Like, when's the last time you saw like a six six, two hundred ninety pound homeless person? I don't know. I don't know, and I can't believe I just said homeless people are emaciated. I apologize. <laughs> oh, well, no. But I mean, Robert Williams is, <laughs> is a small guy. We're right. trying to move on with people. Maybe they, maybe they didn't notice. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, yeah, their, their clothes are always oversized. But maybe that's because you can put on layers and stay warm in that's, the winter. That's probably. True. I'm sure yeah, there's a reason. Yeah. I mean, well, like if, if homeless people are extremely resourceful. Correct. And if you're getting a free coat, who cares as long as I can right. put it on my body? Right, exactly. I would rather be too big than too small. Correct. Exactly. Correct. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they go on this date and they – they uh, and, and, they, and of course, Anne's like dreading it, not wanting to do it. But, you know, they actually have fun. They the have dinner. fun. And there's and this weird – did you notice like this? So the, the scene is they're all sitting at like one of those tables where like the four of them are wrapped around a half table – and they're laughing and giggling. It's a beautiful scene, by the way. Right, and, and Robin Williams is actually being a little silly doing mm-hmm. his Robin Williams stuff. And uh, but then they kept doing this thing where they like would slide the the, the camera. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you remember that? And it was kind of weird. I don't really understand the point of it. But anyway, after dinner, well, I think also I think another important thing through that dinner is like like you said, Anne is really dreading this. But a lot of the romance in that is not just between Perry. And um and so what's her name Sylvia uh, Lydia Perry Lydia, and Lydia, Lydia yeah Lydia. but but between Anne and Jack like there's this romance with them throughout this sequence there's a lot of affection there yeah it's it's a very cute scene and after dinner uh, Perry walks Lydia right back, Lydia to home, back to her and place and she has some great dialogue about what's going to happen and at the night come home you're going to leave in the morning never talk to me again etc cetera, etc cetera. and she's like so let's just call tonight right now and Perry just stops her and is like no. You know, I love you. Yeah. You know, I, 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 and that's all the things you were talking about a moment ago. He's like, I know that you like this paperback book. I know on Tuesdays you go here. On Thursdays you do this. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. And so he really expresses her love. And she's like, are you for real? And like reciprocates it mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And he says, you know, I'm going to go home. You know, I'm not going to, you know. And of course, you know, what you know, he, he we finally we have all this compassion and we're happy for Perry. Right. He, you know, as quirky as she may be, he finds new love. But then, as he's leaving, the red knight shows up again. Yes. And it really spins him into a panic. Yeah, it spins him into a panic because he has. We see this flashback of his wife getting shot. Ooh, it's, it's a it's really harsh scene to watch. Really gruesome. Yeah. Um. Yeah, uh, we'll save that for you all to watch. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but then he kind of stumbles back to his like little homeless area, and guess who shows back up? Yep, uh, it, it's uh, Trey and Chad in their uh, Jeep, <laughs> and they're ready to beat him up again. Now, you know that one of these boys, I forget which one, one of them actually plays Robin Williams' son in another movie. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, you remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. I forget what, forget what that one was. 
But yeah, so then they they beat the crap out of them. Right. And all of a sudden, next we next thing we know, Perry is back in comatose. Right. He they beat him, leave him for dead, and he is in a mental institution. So, um. He's at a hospital. It ends up being a mental institution. So this is the second film in a row where we've gotten some mental institution scenes because the season finale last season was Amadeus and we had um, Salieri. Well, and, and the other Terry Gilliam, 12 Monkeys was a yes, yes. I mean, is this, how does this stack up in movies that have part of their movie um, set in a asylum? Um, I, I, this one is not as harsh to watch as some of the other ones for sure. Um, but the one thing I, I thought was interesting because Jack is trying to find where he is and he finally figures out that, that that's where he is and he goes in. And the doctor just starts telling him, uh, this is what happened to your friend and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he was catatonic the, you know, the first time. He's catatonic again. And I'm watching it and I throw up my hands. I'm like, you can do this now? Like, that's a HIPAA violation. Like, this could never happen. No, you can't walk. You can't even get past the front desk. And yet he's just walking back to the bed, and the doctor's giving him his whole, you know, status report. Um, But he's lying in a bed catatonic, like, just staring at the ceiling. Like, he's in some casts, and he's, you know, hurt. Don't know if I'll ever wake up again. Right. That's right. We we don't know. Like, and and Bridges says, he said it might be three hours. It might be three days. It might be three weeks. We, We don't know. Might be never. Right, right. Which I was wondering about that, too. Like, the human body can only go so long without food, right? Like, there's a point at which if you never wake up from, from a catatonic state, like, you're just going to die. Because if he's not eating or anything like that... Well, I'm sure they're feeding him something. I mean, there's some type of fluid nutrients. nutrients. He didn't have, a, he didn't have a, an he IV. Didn't have no, yeah. I was looking for an IV or a TPN or something. All right, all right. so we found another flaw in this movie. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And you would have thought he would have lost a lot of weight in that state. Yeah, you would think that. But yeah, And well, we don't know how long he was there, but... Ultimately, Lydia knows he's there, and she brings him some pajamas and some bed sheets, so he's dressed in these, like... I think it's cute that Lydia is still coming and checking on him. Yeah. I mean, she she fell for him. Yes, totally. Because it's the first person that she's met that actually is like, no, I'm not using you. Like, right. I really, really like you. Right. And so, he's there, and, and, and Jack is still really concerned about him, and he doesn't know what to do, and he finally well, says... Well, but here's the interesting thing, too, though. Even before this scene happens, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong... Jack, though, he accomplished his mission. Yes, he felt good about it. He's like, I got it. He 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 redeemed himself because he got them to, like, fall in love with each other. And he's actually talking to his agent again. David Hyde Pierce shows back up. He's going to get back on the radio. He decides he's going to work again. He's going to work again. And he's, you know, he's, like, actually, you know, kind of back in the biz. And one of the great scenes, you're exactly right, because I jumped this scene. It's a great scene where he's walking with his agent to meet with the producer about this the, the homeless, homeless show, show that we talked right. about earlier. And he walks right past the Jeter character who's getting arrested and he's screaming, Jack, Jack, you know me, you know me. And he walks right past him like he doesn't know him. Well, and even and even David uh, Hyde Pierce asked him, do you know that, know guy? that guy? He's like, no. No, I don't know that no. guy. I mean, he's back to his narcissist. And you're, and you're watching this movie like, you gotta be kidding yeah. me. Yeah. And so he gets up there and they pitch the, the thing to him and he's thinking about it and he has this change of heart. He's like, I gotta go. So he yeah. runs downstairs and... Um, Tries to find Jeter, and then he tries to... He ultimately finds out what's happened to Perry. Mm-hmm. And so that's when he goes to the mental hospital, finds out where he is, and then we get this whole thing where he's going to see him. He's still upset. He still wants to figure out a way to... I don't know if he's still doing it for himself or he genuinely is, is has empathy for Perry. And I think he probably does, because at this point he decides, all right, I'll break into that castle and I'll get that holy grail for you. Yeah, yeah, and he actually dresses up like Perry yes. when he does it, 
he dressed up like a homeless person. And even when he's breaking in, he's like, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm going to get, you know, arrested and blah, blah, blah. And he, you know, he, but I do agree with you. If what you're saying is that I think now he's actually turned the corner where it's no longer, he's helping Perry to help himself. I think at this point he actually is wanting to do something for Perry. I think that's right. I think which, he, which is which is the, the true redemption in that's this right. character. That's exactly right. Yeah, and 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 he in, in a totally ridiculous scene, he goes to this building that they call the castle, which is this. Um, it's actually like a campus. It's, building it's on campus at, at a college in New York City. And so he, you know, he... Well, it's actually uh, on the college that, that, that Perry actually taught teaching. But they make it sound like it's a residence, yeah. Right. So he, you know, constructs a grappling hook, and he scales a couple of different levels to get to the top, and he breaks in, and he goes in. And this wealthy billionaire guy is sitting there, and he realizes, he sees this holy grail thing, but he also realizes that the billionaire has tried to kill himself. Like, he's sees an empty bottle of pills, and the guy's yep. unconscious... So he grabs the grail and he's getting ready to go out and he has this moment where like, what do I do? Because he sees a laser beam protecting the door. Like if it's broken, it's going to sound an alarm. And so he ultimately opens the door, walks out and runs away. And in doing so, saves not only Perry by bringing him the Holy Grail, but saves this billionaire guy, which yeah. you see on the on the cover of a paper later on that, you know, burglar saves, you know, foil suicide attempt or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and so we, we, we also see all these, like, you know, kind of good characteristics starting to come out. Uh, and then he takes the Holy Grail, and it's not the real one, by the way. No, it's like a cup, like, from some, like, <laughs> like, a like talent show championship yeah. or something. Yeah, it's like the silliest thing. Um, but then he takes it back to the hospital, and he just puts it on Perry's chest. And, you know, usually I would call complete BS on the scene, mm-hmm. but it works. Yes. It works here because of the way the movie's just been set up and just how crazy Perry is to begin with. He puts it on his chest and walks away. And, of course, the next thing you know, Perry starts to emerge from his, his, his coma. And what's the first thing that they all do? Well, everybody's singing. I like, I like New York <laughs> I and like June. New York and, and you know, June. He, he's leading a chorus of, of the insane singing, I like New York in June. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I've talked about a lot, I, and I may not have talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I talk about it a lot with movies, is it's really hard to end a movie effectively. It's really hard to write a good ending, I think. And this ending falls into that trap because you've had this build-up, and then Perry wakes up, and you get him singing I Love New York in June. And another thing that we didn't talk about was that Jack leaves Anne because she wants him. She wants more from him, and he's like, I'm going to go do my own thing. So they're estranged. And so the next thing he does after all of that is he goes to the video store, and he tells Anne he wants her back. He's got a rose, and... She talks to him for a minute, and, you know, finally he says he loves her, and then she smacks him, and then they, she kisses him, and then we get back to a scene where they start making out and knock over a bunch of videos. Right. It's super dumb, because yeah. no way does that happen in real life. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, then Perry gets back together with Lydia. Yes. And so, like, you know, all everybody's back in love again by the end of the movie, and then it concludes with, now we're back in Central Park. Mm-hmm. And this time, and Ronald Williams is naked again to break apart clouds, but this time Jeff Bridges is naked. They're both just lying naked in the grass. And they're just both laying naked naked in the grass. Spoiler alert, no dongs in this scene. (laughs) That's what you're looking for. Don't watch this. You'll need to rewind. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because it doesn't happen here. Um, And then they just are watching clouds, and then you got fireworks going off, weird lights. And And, and then we go to a recording of I Like New York and Jim. Yeah, exactly. And and that's it. And... (laughs) 
that sequence, the scene in Central Park with the two of them, I think saves the ending because those other two little contrived pieces to wrap it up, they, they don't hit home for me. But that piece with those two who formed a brotherhood, um, sharing this moment, like he's like, okay, you're crazy, but I'm going to do it with you, and I, I'm I'm with I'm I'm in your corner. It is a great scene to end it. Well, I think the only thing that would have been better if maybe during the closing credits, like Jeff Bridges and Robin Williams would have found those two kids and beat the crap out yeah, of them. Yeah, that would have been. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, Jeff Bridges is a big man. Robin Williams isn't tall, but he's a strong man. Right, right. They could have just beat the crap out of those kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would have been kind of. If Will Ferrell had directed this, that would have happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's how the movie would have ended. But, I mean, overall, I mean, and really, I mean, I know we, you know, there's a couple of spots here and there, but, I mean, really solid flick. Very, very good. I mean, it's. Um, some of the stuff is dated, like we talked about the video store and the outfits and all of that stuff. But that's okay. That's to be expected. And it's actually kind of awesome to watch that and reminisce about the uh, early 90s and, and think about that time. Um, and if you are young and don't remember that, it, it really – people really did dress like that. Yeah, they did. And um, But it, it's, it still holds up really, really well. I, I, I pushed stop at the end of watching this one and thought – I stood up and said, that holds up pretty well. Well, and here's some interesting things. This movie went through a lot of different development curves. And uh, one of them was the Jack character. Originally, the Jack character was supposed to be a cab driver. Oh, a disgruntled cab okay, driver. Okay. But then when somebody, whether on the production team or whatnot, uh, heard Howard Stern, they're like, much better. Much better For sure. person. For sure, because I think the disgruntled cab driver would have... Been like created taxi driver. taxi driver. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, and we don't it's, want to see that movie. No, yeah, you can't. You can't repeat it. No. And, and there were some interesting people that um, you know potentially could have been in this movie. I mean, Bruce Willis auditioned mm-hmm. for a role. Billy Crystal and Kevin Klein were both considered for the Klein was Jack. a big yeah. Klein was a big one for that. Um, but I, I don't think they would have done it nearly as well as no. Jeff Bridges. Neither no. one of them. Not then they're fair actors, obviously. But I, I think it was a, a, a perfect role. Um, but you know, and and I know I knew you were gonna like this movie because you love New York movies. I do, I do love New York movies. Uh, so um, you know, what do we, what do what do we what do, what do we want to say about this one? Twenty uh, years later. Yeah. So again, twenty years later, it's still this movie is still good to answer that question. <laughs> and so, um, when's the next time I'm gonna watch it? You know that we always talk about that. Yeah. I, I would. I mean, I would watch it again in a few weeks with the right crowd. That yeah, I, I would that. too. I would too. Um, and if it's not, if it doesn't come up, you know, in a year or two, I'll, I'll watch it. Yeah, you don't see this one on TV very often, it's, which I don't understand why. It's not like it's vulgar. It's not like you'd have to trim it down to like you know seventy minutes because of the. No, it's. I, I don't know, but you never see it, and, that, and it, that's kind of one of the movies that we were looking for with this podcast was yeah. a movie that you just don't see very often, but was a critically acclaimed movie. Right, and and, and maybe didn't win for best picture, but. You know, like you say, you didn't see it again. Let's watch it again. Is it still good? And yeah, I mean, this this one definitely, um, you know, is very very good. Yeah. Um, now, one thing that I I, I talked to you earlier about um, the writer of this movie, he also wrote the ref. Okay. Which we might talk about later, but he also wrote the Bridges of Madison County and Water for Elephants, which we will never talk. That about. those you can guarantee Bridges of Madison County will not be on this podcast. No, if neither you, will Water for Elephants. If you if you had those in Vegas, just cash your ticket. Just, just, just rip just, your ticket up. It's worthless. Yeah, it's we're we're, we're never going to get there. I mean, we could do five thousand episodes and. We'll be talking about something else other than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I I agree with you. I mean, this movie stands up very well. Um, you, the things that date it are not anything outlandish. I mean, obviously the cars in New York were bigger in the '90s. You know, the clothes styles were right. a little different, but it wasn't anything that was just like 
too much. But the overarching themes are so current that Absolutely. you can drop it in right now and watch it. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I, I don't know if I would want to be want it to be remade because I don't know who you would remake it with that no. would be this good. Right. So I, I, I just kind of want to put it like in a little bottle and throw it in the ocean and hopefully one day the tide brings it back to me. Yeah, I agree with that. So final grade? Oh, I give it a solid A. I would give it an A as well. This is a, this is a really well done movie. A couple of warts. You know, again, I, I slammed the ending a little bit, but it, it's still an A film front to back. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, we enjoyed this one. I mean, you know, we're just kicking off season two. We got a lot of different surprises for you this year. Uh, we're going to do a lot of different ranges, a lot of different types of things, and, you know, continue to grow uh, the platform. Um, you know, I, I think we're still kind of working on like what type of uh, uh, sponsorship we could get. So if you're interested, you know, you know where to find us. Find us, yeah. It, it doesn't take much. No, not much. <laughs> <laughs> Send us a case of koozies. We'll, we'll, we'll plug you. Um, but yeah, so, and I think... As we go forward, we're going to try to release every two weeks as we drop this, so be listening. That's our uh, promise if, now. Every two weeks, that's right. You know we, we make rules and break them. So <laughs> that's what we do. We have no discipline. No discipline. <laughs> uh, but anyway, yeah. Uh, tell, tell your friends. Share with your friends. Absolutely. Have a, have, a, have, a, have a barbecue and just play it over the loudspeaker. <laughs> I think everybody right. would enjoy that. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, but but thanks a lot. We we've gotten uh, tremendous listens across the country and around the world. You know, all the way from England to the Philippines. So thanks for listening. Um, and we've got some fun stuff coming up. So check us out. Look for us um, on www.isthatmoviestillgood.com. We are still on our host friends at Podbean. You can follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere. So. Um, Just check us out. We appreciate it. And we will see you again soon on Is That Movie Still Good? Bye.